We go back to Genesis 2 this afternoon. I'm going to read the last part of that chapter and then we're going to turn to two passages in the New Testament where the text is quoted. So let's begin reading at Genesis 2 verse 18 to the end of the chapter. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found and help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now let's turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, we will read verses 3 through 9. And notice that in this passage, our Lord Jesus Christ shows that not only does he believe what Genesis 2 says, and thereby he shows the infallibility of the scriptures, but he grants his stamp of approval as well on that doctrine of marriage that we will consider today. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, it is, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered, that's Jesus, and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore, they are no more twain, or two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery." Finally, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. There the Apostle Paul also refers to the same scripture in Genesis 2. We will read verses 22 through 33, it should say in the bulletin, 22 through 33. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, 
and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now let's go back to Genesis. The text for the sermon is Genesis 2. Verses 24 and 25. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. As well as chapter 1, verse 28, the first half of the verse. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth that far. It has been said that the history of the human race began with a wedding. The officiant at that wedding was God himself. The groom was Adam, the first man that God created out of the dust of the ground, into whose nostrils he breathed the breath of life, but who then found himself to be alone, about which the Lord said it was not good. The bride at this wedding was Eve, the first woman whom God created out of the rib of Adam, having put him to sleep, into a deep sleep, and having taken that rib of Adam out of his side, he made by a wonder the woman and brought her to the man. God was the officiant, Adam was the groom, Eve was the bride. The beautiful venue of that wedding was nothing less than the Garden of Eden, a place full of beautiful flowers and pleasant trees that were beautiful to the sight and good for food, a place filled with beasts and cattle and birds and fish swimming through the river that flowed through the river, through the garden, a beautiful venue for a wedding. And the music was also beautiful as the birds were chirping and singing their songs and perhaps the gentle breeze could be heard as well as the gurgling of the river. 
And it was there that God, having created the woman from the man, brought her to the man and married them. The history of the human race began with a wedding, a beautiful, pure, godly wedding. Well over a thousand years after that first wedding, the Lord God inspired Moses to write down the narrative of that first wedding in our text and in the context, and also to show what the Lord's own conclusion for us is from what he did there in the beginning. That's the text that we consider today. Notice that the text begins with the word, therefore. That shows that God inspired Moses to write this. Adam did not say these words, but Moses wrote these words over a thousand years after this happened. And by that word, therefore, God is drawing a conclusion through Moses of what he did when he created the woman from the man and brought her to him. Therefore, God says, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. What God did that day with Adam and Eve is that he brought them together and joined them to each other so that they who were two became one. And by that act of God, he is telling us in our text that he was establishing or instituting the first and the most fundamental of all human relationships. The relationship is the one between a man and a woman, which we call marriage. God is teaching us in the text that the norm for human life and experience, although it is not true of every single human being, yet the norm for human life is that a man will leave his father and his mother and will cleave to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So today we consider together the God's institution of marriage. Notice three things. In the first place, marriage defined from the text. Secondly, that marriage must be cultivated. We find that in the text. And thirdly, that marriage is fruitful. What is marriage? According to the text, marriage is that relationship between a man and a woman in which they both leave their father and their mother and they cleave to each other, and they become one flesh, a relationship and a union which is for life. Unlike Adam and Eve, we did not begin our lives in this world as adult human beings. We did not begin our earthly experience as a husband and a wife. They did. Adam and Eve had no human father or mother. They were created as mature adults, a mature man and a mature woman, And they were created from the very first day, married, married from the very beginning of their earthly experience and life. That's not true of any of us after Adam and Eve. All of us have a father and a mother. All of us have been conceived and born into the world through a father and a mother. Our fathers and our mothers are the human beings that God eternally determined would be the ones to bring forth you and to bring forth me into this world. They were the ones 
who gave us life, who nourished us, who cherished us when we were little babies, who fed us, who protected us from all dangers and from enemies, who preserved and cared for us when we were sick. But more importantly, our father and mother are the ones who taught us what we know. They taught us by their words and by their example around the dinner table, around the family fellowship, by their words, but especially by their example. When we were little boys and little girls, we looked up to our parents. We watched them. We observed them. And we learned. And we learned. And we learned. And if we had Christian parents, then what we learned, hopefully, was what is the Christian faith and what is the Christian life. And we learned, hopefully, what is Christian marriage. But then we grew up. We became older children, we became teenagers, we became young people, and the Lord, through his providence, led us to someone so that we began dating, we began a relationship, we began a courtship, or whatever you wish to call it. And sooner or later, after a long time of getting to know each other, spending time together with each other's families, we got engaged. And then, soon, the big day came, the day of the wedding. We who were grooms walked down that aisle, probably with the minister, and came to the front of the church and waited and watched until our brides came walking down the aisle in their white dresses led by their father. And their father then gave away his daughter, probably said, their mother and I give her to this man in marriage, when the minister asked the question, And then we, who were grooms, took our bride and we walked up in the church before the minister who guided us through the service, who told us our vows, and then pronounced before the assembly with the authority given to him, this is now husband and wife. It was at that moment which we might call the culmination of our relationship as girlfriend and boyfriend, now becoming husband and wife, it was at that point that the Lord now said to us, Now you, young man, shall leave your father and your mother and cleave to your wife, and you have become one flesh. Leaving father and mother is what the Lord says, first of all, in the text. We leave father and mother when we become a young man or a young woman. Most of us leave father and mother when we get married. As I said before, there are some who do not get married. They might also leave their father and mother at some point. But for most of us, we leave our parents' home when we get married. It's at that time when we said our vows and we were pronounced husband and wife that we are now to leave our father and mother. And that's not always easy to do. For some fathers and mothers and children, when that beautiful wedding day comes and the father gives away his daughter and the husband takes her into his home, it's a time of great joy and thanksgiving. And everyone rejoices and everyone is happy when the child leaves the home and begins his or her new home. But sometimes it's not quite as easy as that. Sometimes the father or the mother find it very difficult to let go of their child and to encourage and to support and to nudge them forward out of the nest. Sometimes 
The child has a hard time leaving the comfort of their childhood home. And that's why the Lord says in the text, Therefore, because of what I did here at the beginning, a man shall leave his father and his mother. He shall do that. And when the text says that, God is not only saying what usually, naturally happens, but he is also teaching us what ought to happen. Young man, now you ought to leave your father and your mother and cleave to your wife. And that's what he says to the young woman as well. The Lord, by this text, is nudging young people out of the nest, out of the home where they grew up, where they experienced love and comfort and where they learned about the Christian life. Now is the time to leave your father and your mother. The Hebrew word for leaving in the text can be translated forsaking. It's that strong of a word. Now, when the Lord says that a man shall forsake his father and his mother, then we immediately think of negative connotations to that word, but there are no negative connotations. It is simply expressing in a strong way what the young man and the young woman ought to do. If there is a strong, godly home, it will feel like forsaking your father and mother when you go out of that home and start your own home. Because you love your father and your mother. You value that relationship with them. And the Lord is not saying here that we may no longer have any relationship with our father and mother, that we may no longer go into their home, we may no longer spend time with them, learn from them, look up to them, respect them, not at all. But when he says, now is the time to leave your father and your mother, he means that when you marry your wife, you're not going to take her into your childhood home to live there with you and your father and mother. And you're not going to enter into her childhood home and live with her father and mother and her brothers and sisters. Now, to us here in the West, that seems obvious. But when we were missionaries out in the East part of the world, that wasn't so obvious. And we had many debates about what this text meant. Is the Lord here expressing a command? Is it the fact that when we get married, we have to leave our father and mother? We have to move out of the house. We have to go out of, from under their authority and influence. In many countries in the world, especially in poor countries, actually that doesn't happen. But when they get married, they take their wife into their childhood home or they move into the home of their wife and they live together with the grandparents and maybe the great-grandparents. The whole clan is there under the same roof. It's questionable whether that practice can be defended. It's an understandable practice. If you ever go into such a country and you see the poverty with your own eyes and you see how poor they are and how expensive it is even to get married and how expensive it is to purchase your own home or rent your own home, then maybe you can understand that. But it's questionable whether that practice can be defended and whether that's a good practice. It seems from the text that it's not. The Lord says, when we get married, we leave father and mother. That means that it's time to move out. It's time to go out from under their authority. It's time for father and mother to let go of that authority and influence. It's time for the child to fly with his or her own wings. 
and to establish their own home. That happens when we get married. What is marriage? The Lord defines marriage in this passage. We've already defined it as a relationship between a man and a woman in which they leave father and mother and cleave to each other as one flesh for life. Notice four things about that. First of all, the definition of marriage includes this, that marriage is God's institution. God created it. Man did not create it. That's a very prevalent notion in our society today, isn't it? If we think it's strange that in the East they don't leave father and mother when they get married sometimes, they might think it's strange that we in the West would actually consider the fact that God didn't create marriage, that man created marriage, at least the Christians in the East. God created marriage. Thousands and millions of people in our society today think that man evolved from the apes millions of years ago. There is no God. We were created by chance through the Big Bang, and therefore, obviously, God didn't institute marriage. God doesn't define marriage. God doesn't regulate marriage. Where did marriage come from? We created it. We created it at some point in the murky past. Thousands or perhaps even millions of years ago, for pragmatic reasons only, for the purpose of propagating the race and preserving the little children from enemies and creating some kind of order and stability in society. That's all. Well, if that's all, if man created marriage, then man can also abolish marriage if he wants. If man created marriage, then man can redefine marriage if he wants. And that's what's happening today, isn't it? But the scripture that we're considering today teaches us that marriage is God's institution. God determined it. God thought of it in eternity. God instituted it. And God brought it about when he brought Eve to Adam. Therefore, God regulates marriage. God sets the rules for marriage, not us. And if we would know what marriage is and how we are to behave in marriage, we must listen to him and what he teaches throughout Scripture. In the second place, God defines marriage in the text as the first human relationship, not parent-child, but husband-wife was the first human relationship, and therefore it is the fundamental human relationship, the most basic one, And that that relationship is between a man and a woman. That's what marriage is. It cannot be otherwise. God did not create two Adams. He did not create two Eves. Not two men, not two women. Or a multitude of men, or a multitude of women. Or a man with several women, or many women. Or a woman with many men. One man, one woman... He brought the woman to the man, and he said, that's marriage. It's a relationship between one man and one woman. But as we have seen in our society today, man thinks he can define what marriage is, and we're seeing that happen today. But when society says that two men are married to each other or two women, 
Society can say that all they want, but that's not marriage. God does not view that as marriage. They are not married. They are not one flesh. But rather, God considers that a vile sin and rebellion against his created order. I choose the word vile intentionally because that's the word Paul uses in Romans 1 when he speaks of men going with men and women going with women. He says they're going against the natural order. Even nature teaches us that marriage is between a man and a woman, not two men, not two women. Throughout the history of the human race, various marital errors were at various times prevalent and socially acceptable. Just think of the time of the patriarchs and the Jews. During those days, it evidently was prevalent and more or less socially acceptable for a man to marry many women. God even warned the kings not to multiply wives, but the kings went ahead and did that anyway. And they had many, many wives. We think of Solomon especially. But at the particular time in which we live, what is becoming more prevalent and socially acceptable is marriage of a man and a man, or a woman and a woman. But that, too, is against God's created order. The fact that marriage is between one man and one woman also shows that there's no room for any other woman in that marriage. There's no room for any other man in that marriage. It's between one man and one woman. In the third place, God teaches us in the text that marriage is a relationship in which that one man and that woman whom he brings together by his providential guidance become one flesh. They grew up in two different homes. They had two different sets of parents. They're not related to each other, blood by blood. They're two distinct individuals who had two different experiences up to that point. But once they get married, they are one flesh. The two become one. And now that does not mean that the two are no longer two distinct persons with a distinct body and a distinct soul and heart and mind and thoughts and opinions, but it means that God brings them into such a close, intimate relationship that he calls it one flesh. That's different from all other human relationships. You cannot say about a father and his son that they are one flesh, or a mother and her daughter. You cannot say about two girls who are close friends, or two boys who are best buddies, that they are one flesh, as close as that relationship might be. They might love to spend time together. They might have all kinds of things in common. They might be kindred spirits, as we say, friends for life. They're not one flesh. Only a husband and wife can become one flesh. That speaks to the fact that marriage is a union of a husband and wife, a union, a most intimate union. The union of husband and wife begins to take shape already when the young woman and young man are dating. Begins to take shape as they get to know each other, 
as they discover an attraction to each other, physically and emotionally. And that shows the great danger, too, in dating, doesn't it? Because the Word of God says that you ought not to become physically one flesh until you get married. So when we are dating, although we are beginning to become one in our relationship, God warns us to take care that we preserve our purity when we are still single. But when we are dating, the important thing is that we get to know each other, as we said last time, and that we get to know each other, especially in the most important things. We can talk about all kinds of things which are more or less important, but the most important thing is that we learn, are we spiritually one? Marriage is to be a union of the deepest and most intimate sort. And too often people do not pay any attention to what church they are a part of, what their beliefs and values are. They think that will either work itself out or it just doesn't matter. We meet people all the time, don't we, who say, well, I'm Reformed, but my wife is Catholic. Or I'm Lutheran, but I sometimes go to the Mormon church. And they just don't make their faith at all important in their marriage. God says marriage is that you become one flesh. The union of marriage, then, means that we become one physically, emotionally, and spiritually. That's the deepest, most intimate, and strongest relationship when there is a unity of two persons who are one in body, soul, heart, and mind. They're pulling in the same direction. They have the same goals, the same desires for their life, the same values, the same convictions. They're ready to walk down life's path together. Marriage is hard enough in this fallen sinful world for two sinners. I can't imagine how hard it would be if my spouse was not of the same faith as me. But when we get married then, the Lord then says, now you are one flesh in every way. God commands us then on our wedding day to become one flesh. What he prohibited before our wedding, he commands after our wedding. We'll see that in a moment from 1 Corinthians 7. That union of marriage, that union of two bodies in marriage is consummated and comes to its culmination after the wedding. Hebrews 13, verse 4 teaches, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. And the prayer and desire, isn't it, is that as we become one in our dating relationship, and then when we get married, we become more fully one, that that unity of our relationship will not drift apart. As has often been pointed out, all of the novels and all of the stories of romance out there all seem to end with the wedding, don't they? But what happens after the wedding is most important. And the desire and prayer and the labor of marriage is that that union grows closer and closer and closer as the years go by. Marriage is God's institution Marriage is between one man and one woman, 
Marriage is a union of body, soul, heart, and mind. And fourthly, marriage, therefore, is a relationship that cannot be broken. One flesh. One flesh. What we read in Matthew 19, Jesus said, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And right there, Jesus is teaching us that when we get married, God fuses us together. That's Jesus is teaching of our text. His explanation of our text. He says, haven't you learned what we read? Don't you read the scriptures? Don't you see what it says there? That they were two, but they have become one. Therefore, what God has joined, man may not separate The Pharisees were asking Jesus if divorce is okay for any cause. There was a big debate among the Pharisees about divorce, whether divorce was all right for this cause or for that cause or the other cause. And they debated it endlessly. And Jesus shatters their whole house of cards by saying, let not man put asunder what God has joined together. There's only one thing that ultimately can dissolve the marriage bond, death. Romans chapter 7, only death dissolves the marriage bond. Jesus does allow divorce for one reason and one reason only. If the husband or the wife commits adultery against their spouse, for that cause, for that cause only, divorce is permitted. Even then, it doesn't mean divorce is required, but it's permitted the sin of adultery strikes at the very heart of the marital relationship, a union of two bodies, two hearts, and two souls. But if divorce does take place on proper grounds, remarriage is not allowed because, in essence, one is still married to that person. One flesh, husband and wife, until death do us part. Marriage is an unbreakable covenant between two people. The most important and fundamental reason why that is true is that marriage is a symbol of the unbreakable covenant between God and his people in Jesus Christ. Why did God create marriage? Why did he institute this relationship? of intimacy, of union, of love, of fellowship, of friendship. He instituted it as a symbol of his relationship with his people. Now, God was already in a relationship with Adam and Eve in the beginning. He was in a covenant with them. But it was not his intention that that covenant would remain and continue. Rather, that Adam and Eve would fall into sin and he would establish his covenant with us through Jesus Christ, his Son. That's what we read in in Ephesians 5 from the Apostle. The Apostle quotes the text as well, but he quotes it in a different context to show that the relationship between a husband and a wife is a picture of of the loftiest and most wonderful and beautiful relationship of all, the mystery of Christ and his church. Marriage is a picture of that relationship. 
And that teaches us how we are to behave in marriage. The apostle shows the intimacy of that union of the church with Christ. Just as he says about Adam and Eve, that Eve was created from the rib of Adam, so that Adam said, this woman is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Paul says, we are bone of Christ's bones. We are flesh of Christ's flesh. There is an intimate union between us and Christ. Christ has sent his spirit into our hearts and gathered us up to himself as his wife. He has established an unbreakable union with us. He will never break it, and we can never break it. Christ loved his bride so much, Paul says, that he gave himself for her. He laid down his life for his bride on the cross in his love to make sure that that relationship which God eternally determined could be established and would be established and would remain for all eternity. The book of Revelation brings us back to that great theme. Chapter 19, we are to look forward that at the end of this age, Christ will return. We are told that the Lamb will come for his bride. Once she is fully adorned and fully prepared, once she has been fully gathered from the nations, then he will come for her and bring her to himself. And then will take place the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper is still to come. The wedding has been ratified through the death of Jesus Christ, but the marriage supper is still to come. We're in between the wedding and the wedding reception waiting for the coming of our bridegroom on the clouds of heaven to dwell with us in the union of that covenant for all eternity. That's why marriage cannot be broken. Marriage is a picture of the mystery of Christ and the church. And therefore, marriage is very precious and must be cultivated. I take that to be the meaning of the text when the Lord says that a man shall cleave unto his wife. Cleave unto his wife. The Lord is teaching there that he is to cultivate, he is to nurture, he is to work hard on his marriage. The word cleave in the original Hebrew means to stick to cling. It even has the idea of sticking like glue. Imagine you take a glue stick, let's say some really, really strong glue, and you use it to stick something, maybe a decoration to a piece of paper, and you can't take that decoration off once you've stuck it with the glue to the paper. You can't take it off. God is saying in the text that a man has to Stick to his wife like glue. Cling to her. Cleave to her. Now in the very beginning, Adam did that perfectly. There was no question about it. God created Adam in his own image and likeness and righteousness and holiness. He knew God perfectly. He loved God perfectly. And as soon as he saw Eve, he loved her. Not with the kind of lust that the world speaks of today, but with a true selfless love, a perfect love. 
and she loved her husband as well. And so we read in verse 25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Naked and not ashamed. Because they were perfect in their relationship, perfect in their love, perfect in cleaving to each other. Imagine the marriage of Adam and Eve before they fell into sin. They walked together in the garden, naked and not knowing it, naked and not ashamed, wearing no clothes as they walked together through the garden. No lust, no selfish appetite, no desire to use his wife or to use her husband for their own selfish gratification and pleasures. None of that. They had no insecurity as they walked together in the garden about their own bodies. They had no fear of criticism, that their husband would criticize their body or the wife would criticize his body. They had no shame of past sins that they committed in their bodies. They were naked, and they were not ashamed. Because Adam was perfect and Eve was perfect in the image and likeness of God, and they were able to look at each other, to walk with each other, to dwell with each other in the bond of marriage without sin, in perfect love. But that all changed after the fall. We are told after the fall that their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked for the first time. Suddenly they realized that they were naked and their spouse was naked and they quickly sewed some fig leaves together to cover their nakedness because they were ashamed. It was in that moment of the fall that they realized that their eyes had changed and now the lust of the eyes was in their, in their flesh. The pride of life was there. Now they started to look at each other as an object to use for my own gratification and my own pleasure. Now they started to become bitter and resentful towards each other and all the different dreadful sins that can lurk in the flesh arose. The perfect love that Adam gave to Eve before the fall and that she perfectly reciprocated and received was no longer there. They were ashamed when they fell. After the fall is when we live. Worldly men who are unregenerated are not able to cleave to their wives. They're not able to obey God. They're not able to love their wives. They can only lust. They can only see their wives as a tool or an object for their own pleasure. Or however they view their wife, they're not able to cleave to her. We see that manifested today in our society by the increasing number of divorces. Divorces multiply after five or ten years of marriage. Sometimes 15 or 20 or 25 years people spend together, living a life together, and then they divorce and go their separate ways. It's because all along they were using each other. That's the way the world is today. That's why the apostle has to use this text to warn against sexual infidelity, even for Christians. 1 Corinthians 6, he quotes the text there as well, and he says, What? Know ye not that... He which is joined to an harlot is one body, for two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. 
The Apostle reminds us that in marriage we become one flesh as husband and wife. So if you as a husband go to the harlot and you join your body to the harlot, don't you realize what you're doing? You're becoming one with that harlot. But you're joined to the Lord. Flee fornication. Husbands, we are to cleave to our wives. We are to cultivate our marriages. Last Sunday, we focused on the calling of wives as helpers for their husbands, called to assist them in all lawful things. I think this text focuses more on the man and the calling of the husband. It says that a man shall leave his father and mother. That's the emphasis here. And that man shall cleave to his wife. The wife has to cleave to her husband as well. But the emphasis in the text is on the husband cleaving to his wife. What then does that mean? Cleaving to our wives means we are faithful to them. When we got married, which is a thing that's good to remember to our minds once in a while, look at the pictures of, from the wedding, remind ourselves of that day, walk through the memories together again. It's a good thing to do. When we got married, we took vows, and we made a vow to be faithful to each other in sickness and in health, in rain or sunshine, riches or poverty. We husbands made a vow to love her and to cherish her, to nourish her as Christ nourishes his church. Cleaving to our wives means that we remain faithful to them. Emotionally faithful, sexually faithful, mentally and in every way. Men, do we consider our marriages precious enough to cultivate them, to cleave to our wives, to focus on them and stick to them like glue? Cleaving to our wives means that we are constantly looking to Christ and all that he did for us. And how he cleaves to us, even though we sin against him. And following the model of Christ, we seek constantly to put off the old man with all of his unchaste thoughts and unchaste desires and unchaste looks and lusts and actions and words. So that we may learn to have eyes of love only for that precious wife that God has given to us to have eyes for her and for nobody else. The goal, husbands, is that our affection for our wives doesn't wane over the years, but that it grows stronger. But if we're looking at every other woman, and if we're latching onto them and sticking to them and gluing to them, then our affection for our wives is not going to grow stronger. Cleaving to our wives means that we seek constantly to crucify the old man. The old man that attempts to lead us into anger and bitterness towards our wives. In Colossians, the apostle says, Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter against them. Why? Because bitterness is something that husbands are often prone to. Cleave to your wives. That means don't be bitter against them. Don't point the finger of criticism at her, but pull it back to yourself. And let's point that finger of criticism at ourselves. The finger of judgment, we don't point it at her. We point it at ourselves. We learn how to 
stop speaking critical words and learn how to speak kind and tender words. Cleave to your wives. That means show love to her in every way that you can think of. Cleave to her. Stick to her. How can I show love to her? How can I embrace her? How can I show love to her? Hold her hand. Give her a kiss. Compliment her. Spend quality time with her. Are our marriages precious to us? Are they worth working on, cultivating? Cleave to your wife. That means communicate to her. She needs to hear the thoughts that are in your heart. She needs to know what you are thinking. She needs to know what you are desiring, what you are needing. She needs you to talk to her. In 1 Peter 3, verse 7, the Apostle Peter says, Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, and give honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Give honor to your wife. Speak to her. Communicate to her. Open up your heart to her. And take an interest of what is in her heart. What is she thinking? Do you care? Do you want to know what's troubling her? Do you want to know what she's thinking and feeling about this or that? Cleaving to our wives means that we're working, constantly working to strengthen our marriages because if we're not working on strengthening our marriages, they're going to get weaker. There's only two options. They either get weaker or they get stronger. So if we're not working at it, working at cleaving to our wives and cultivating it, then it's going to get weaker. And part of that means that we don't allow issues between us to stay there. We talk about it. We have an open, honest, frank conversation when there's something troubling our marriage so that those issues don't remain. They're dealt with and they're put behind us. That's cleaving to your wife. It means that we pray for our wife. Pray for her in front of the children. Pray for her in private, in her hearing. Pray with her. You know the saying, I think, couples that pray together stay together. And there are so many scriptures. Proverbs 5, 15 and following, says to the young man, Let thy fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 9, Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of thy life of thy vanity. Just think of the book of the Song of Solomon. You can't read the Song of Solomon without being struck by the abundant, overflowing affection of Christ for his church. At the end of that book, we're told that love is stronger than death. That's the love of Christ. Stronger than death. The love of Christ for us husbands, strong as death. And when we have that kind of love for our wives in which we are doing good to them, loving them, that affection will grow, and the duties of marriage will not become a burden and a nuisance for either the husband or the wife. In 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul, who was a single man, was inspired to write, Husbands, remember that you do not have sole rights to your bodies, to your body. Wives, remember that you do not have sole rights to your body. You are one flesh. Your wife has a lot in your body. Husbands, and vice versa as well. And there's a a duty that husbands have to pay to their wives and a 
a duty that wives have to pay to their husbands. The problem with that text is that sometimes husbands take that and they use that to try to force their wives to do what they want because that's the corruption of our sinful natures. Whenever a husband would take that text and say to his wife, you have a duty that you have to fulfill towards me. What a dreadful, selfish sin that is. No. There is a duty. But as husbands, we are to focus on our calling, to cleave to them, to love them with patience, with gentleness, with kindness, dwelling with them and communing with them as a man of understanding. And that affection will be there. Sometimes a husband or wife might come to the pastor and say, there's just no more love in our marriage. There's no more love, no more affection. We don't love each other anymore. And what the, husband ha- what the pastor has to tell them is, love is a calling. Love is a command. Love is not, first of all, a feeling, an affection. That's a wonderful thing to have that feeling, that affection. And what a good pastor will say to that couple is not, you're never going to have that again. That was in the past. That was just when you were young and dating and full of energy But the wise pastor will tell that couple, you can have that again, and you will, by loving each other. Love each other. And then you will also like each other. That's almost guaranteed. Sometimes there are significant reasons in a marriage why the affection has waned. Sometimes trust has been damaged very severely and very deeply. And when that happens, there's a lot of work to be done. A lot of work to restore that trust. A lot of faithful, consistent cleaving and loving. That affection can be restored and refreshed in a marriage. It can wane at times, and it can come back. But in the way of unfaithfulness, in the way of wicked, selfish, lustful, persistent behavior, yes, that affection will wane and probably be destroyed. And then you have to dwell together in your marriage the rest of your life, and it won't be very fun. Are our marriages precious to us? Husbands, let us cleave to our wives. What a blessing it is, then, when God makes our marriages fruitful, On that sixth day, when God brought Adam, his wife, we are told that he blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful. He blessed them and said, be fruitful. When the text says in chapter 1, verse 28, that he blessed them, the idea is that he blessed them with the ability to be fruitful, the ability to have children when they come together in the love of their marriage. God gave them that ability. He doesn't give that to all couples. We all know the story of Hannah, who wanted a son so badly, but she couldn't have a child, and so many others in the scriptures. And we know couples like that, too, 
in the church. That's a great grief. That's a great burden to have infertility. And we do well to encourage and be very kind to couples like that. We can be very insensitive to them. But the Lord gives to most couples the ability to have children. He blesses us. He blesses our marriage. He crowns our marriage with children. And we ought to view that as a great blessing. He binds the union of the husband and the wife in the intimacy of the act of marriage. He binds that act to the fruitfulness of marriage. And he also gives a mandate. He says, be fruitful. I've blessed you and given you that. Now be fruitful. You wouldn't know that from the society we live in today. We live in a day and age when couples get married and they tell us very openly they don't plan to have any children. They have decided, they've talked about that, and they don't want to have any children because they have all kinds of plans for their life. That's not right. The Lord gives us a mandate. Be fruitful. Multiply and replenish the earth. That mandate does not tell us exactly how many children to have. Sometimes you hear a couple say that sort of thing too. We plan to have two kids. Well, you might have none. That's a nice plan, but you might have none. We like to make our plans and carry them out, don't we? But the Lord says to be fruitful. He doesn't tell us how many. He knows. He has determined the exact number of children that each of us will have. We don't know that when we're young. Once we've lived our childbearing years, then we know. Then we know how many God determined for us to have. But I plead with you, my fellow young couples, do not be so quick to follow the example of our society around us. We can imbibe, as I said earlier, I think, in the prayer or in the sermon, we can just imbibe almost unconsciously the philosophy and the thinking of the world, almost without realizing we're doing it. But is that what Scripture teaches us? That when we get married, we should set a definite number of children from the very start and then try to fulfill that. And then once we've gotten that one or two or three children, then we make a firm decision that we're going to be finished and we're not going to have any more children, then that's that. Is that proper? Scripture doesn't tell us how many we're going to have. We don't know that at the beginning. I would say from this text, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Although we no longer have the goal of filling the earth, obviously the earth is full of people. But the command is still there to be fruitful and multiply, and there's still a good reason for it. Because although we don't have to fill the earth so much anymore, we do have to fill the new heavens and the new earth. People are so concerned about overpopulation of this world that they advise us not to have many children. That's what's behind it. The smaller number of children, what's behind that is this great fear of overpopulation and lack of resources, and we have to preserve the human race, and we have to be very careful that we don't produce too many children. Well, as Christians, we're looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. We don't know how big that will be. 
but there will be plenty of space and plenty of food and drink for all God's children. And God says to us as believers, be fruitful, because I will establish my covenant with you and your children after you in their generations to be a God unto you and to your seed after you. God promises to save our children. That's why the scriptures consistently present a positive message about having children, although the scriptures never tell us that we are to make a firm decision about that. But, for example, Psalm 127, Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. 1 Timothy 2, verse 15, the apostle writes that the godly Christian woman will be saved in childbearing. Saved in childbearing. Because it's a wonder. And it's a blessing to have children. So when we become married, we're also saying that we're ready to raise a family together. Sometimes we think that we need to work on our relationship without children. Or you could think of it this way. We work on our relationship by having children. That's how you work on your relationship. Because the first step towards selfless love is getting married. Now you have to love someone. Someone who's going to be with you there the rest of your life. You have to love that person selflessly. But now the second step is having children. Now your freedom and your desires and your ambitions to live a rich and wealthy and prosperous life are restricted even more. And that teaches us even more selfless love. Children are the crown of our marriages. Fruitfulness is a blessing to our marriages, a gift of God. That's the attitude we need to keep. That's what the scriptures teach us. God's institution, marriage, God's institution. God defines it. God regulates it. God tells us how to behave in it. And through the preaching of his word today, he reminds us of these things, challenges us, challenges us too. And may God grant us the grace to consider our marriages precious, one of the most precious things we have, worth cultivating. Amen. Father, we give thee thanks for our marriages. Each of us is at a different stage of life. Some of us are young, some of us are old, some are having children, we have, some of us have had our children. Each of us has different struggles. Some of us have perhaps similar struggles. Thou knowest, Father, each of us with our own needs, our own sins, our own struggles. We pray, uphold us in our marriages. Help us to count them so precious that they are worthy of the greatest care and attention and cultivation. And in this way, we pray that thou would build strong homes in our congregation, and bless us with children, and raise those children, we pray, and bring them to thyself. 
Forgive us, Father, all of the sins we've committed against each other in our marriages and the sins we've committed against Thee. For we know that ultimately it is against Thee that we sin. When we have wrong ideas about marriage, when we behave badly in our marriages,